0: Welcome to Speaking for the Trees, a podcast where two friends with science backgrounds who care a lot about the environment talk about the environment. I'm Ellie. That's Lauren. Hello. Hello. And today we're (laughs) going to talk to you about the carbon cycle. But before we do that, we're going to tell you what we're drinking because we're basic bitches. Lauren, what are you drinking?
1: Oh, you know, I am (laughs) drinking a Bartles and James wine cooler that's in watermelon and mint. (laughs)
0: You said something about also burning a very fancy candle, and I want to hear about that too.
1: It's not that fancy. Um, I bought, full disclosure, I did buy this candle because of the candle holder, which has a Scorpio
0: (laughs) symbol on it. Um, (laughs) What did I tell you, listener? Basic bitches.
1: uh, The scent notes I am holding this candle precariously in the air, lit. It has notes of peach, tuberose, gardenia, coconut, and vanilla, which is funny because it mostly just smells like coconut.
0: That sounds very pleasant and very, like, beachy, which is perfect for the amount of quarantining we're doing, Uh, because we're recording this at the end of March. Speaking of quarantining, I have a quarantini. It is a... (laughs) (laughs) It's just some white peach and sorry, peach and white cranberry juice with some vodka in it because that is what I have at my house. <laughs> yeah, and I don't have a candle because I forgot that that was a thing we were doing. Fun drink names
1: aside, uh, yeah, obviously the quarantine is a very serious situation. Um, I have no idea when this episode will go up, but me neither. Um, in general, people... In general life, people should be washing their hands
0: and hey, trying anything, not to touch their
1: faces. If this in-
0: quarantine teaches anyone anything, I hope it teaches people to just wash their hands better. And, like, yeah. all the time. Because yeah, there are some... There is a group of people, I won't name their names, but they're all men. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> who think that their junk is clean enough that they don't have to wash their hands after they pee. And I would hope that maybe this whole situation would teach them not to do that. This is wishful thinking on my part would Thanks you like to for move that. on <laughs> yeah it's yes, gross yes please i have feelings about it <laughs> so we've all heard of the water cycle right have you heard of the water cycle lauren i i have once upon a time okay good water in the ocean and lakes gets heated rises as vapor to the atmosphere. Then it rains down onto land, where it goes into rivers, into plants, and into the ground. It eventually makes its way back to a big body of water, rinse and repeat. That all sounds familiar, I hope. The vague workings of the water cycle are usually pretty much common knowledge, at least in the United States. Um, But it's not the only material cycle that's important to life on Earth. Uh, There's also the nitrogen cycle. There's the carbon cycle. And hell, there's even a cycle for pretty much any material if you zoom out and look at all geologic time. But this is an environmental podcast, so I'm sure it comes as no surprise to you that today we will be discussing the carbon cycle and how humans fit into it. So, yes, we will talk about climate change, in case you're wondering. In fact, we will rant about climate change. As you may have guessed, based on my water cycle example, the carbon cycle traces how a molecule of carbon might work its way around the rocks, water, air, and life. Like all cycles, there's no end and no beginning, so I just picked one. We're just going to start with life. Life that photosynthesizes to make its food, like a strawberry plant, for an example, uh, intakes carbon dioxide. It breaks up that carbon in the oxygen, and it uses the carbon to make food and expels the oxygen. Whenever they take in carbon dioxide atoms out of the air and put in the carbon into their tissues, they are doing something called carbon sequestration. This is a fancy scientist mumbo-jumbo word for they take the carbon out of the air and they keep it in their cells. Uh, Whenever this happens, it brings the carbon out of the air category and puts it into the life category. It can further spread in the life category when other life eats it, like a turtle eating a strawberry from our little strawberry plant. Please Google that word, that that strawberry being eaten by a turtle. It's very cute. Oh, <laughs> I thought you meant sequestration,
1: and I was like, "No, I thought you ju- you just told us what that was."
0: No, I want you to Google like the- a turtle eating a strawberry. It's literally the cutest oh. thing. If you can't see, that's fine. Just know it's very cute.
1: I can. I, as an aside, I love the I I love the word sequestration because it makes me think of like I don't know like this like. It's just, like, hoarding the carbon in its, like, little shelter.
0: <laughs> yeah, imagine a little dragon. and Every time it sees a carbon atom, it grabs it and brings it to its hoard. Where it can't escape. That's carbon sequestration. Uh, so when the turtle eats the strawberry, the turtle takes the carbon from the sugars in the strawberry and stores it in its body. So the carbon goes from one life form to another. Now that the carbon is in the life category, we unfortunately have to move on to the rock category, which means either the turtle or the plant needs to die. I am going to use the turtle because it makes the next part easier to explain. I am so sorry. Now, in my notes, I did write pause for turtle morning. So let's take a moment of silence for our turtle. Okay, moving I on. I miss him already. <laughs> So when the turtle dies, its tissues breaks down into chemicals over a long period of time, and carbon dioxide is once again free to go into the atmosphere, or it goes into the rocks. Since life is no longer sustaining the component parts of the turtle, i.e. shell and bones, these things mineralize and turn to rock or are absorbed into the rock that forms around it in a process called sedimentation. Either way, the turtle is a rock now. Listen, death is unavoidable. Call your mom. But out of life, carbon is now in the rock and air categories. So now the rock sits on the landscape. This is another form of carbon sequestration. This is another form of carbon sequestration. The transfer of carbon from biology to geology. But it won't stay there forever. The carbon can end up in the air category if the rock is burned as a fossil fuel, It can end up in the water category if a river cuts through it and the water dissolves the carbon in the rock and takes it with it. A coral reef can take up carbon back out of the water by using it for its photosynthesis and so on, forever and ever. The carbon cycle is inevitably the life cycle of Earth. Carbon is exchanged and moved around different parts, either free in the air and water or sequestered in life and rock. Making sense so far? Am I using any words that don't make sense? I don't
1: think so. Not that I've noticed. Um. <laughs> That's
0: true. I need I need like a person with a high school degree just read this and be like, what does that mean? <laughs> uh yeah. Yeah. I, mean- I I again we always take feedback if people want to tweet at our Twitter and be like I didn't understand this you should have explained it more always do that because we straight up have been so steeped in this crap for so long that we don't know what the regular person knows anymore
1: I think that you've but at least your sections you do a good job of or as far as I can tell you do a good job of like understanding which words people won't be familiar with
0: yeah well, I'm could, not good have about
1: have it tried. I will fully own that I'm
0: very bad at it in fact <laughs> I would say all right So now we're going to get into climate change. So brace yourself. Naturally, the carbon level in the atmosphere is a cause for concern among scientists due to the theory of climate change. Ever heard of it? We have data that goes... Oh, I've
1: never heard of it. I've (laughs) never heard of it. Not even once, Ellie. Please explain to me.
0: Ah, crap. I don't actually go into what climate change is. I go back to the proof of it. So we have data that goes all the way back to 800,000 years ago. To put that in perspective, humans are between 10,000 and 50,000 years old, depending on what archaeologist you ask. So this data goes back 80 times the amount of humans that have been around. That's a long time. Enough to put the trends of pre-human Earth in perspective. Warming and cooling are natural parts of the Earth's climate. It's like the planet breathing. As the carbon increases in the atmosphere, temperatures warm, and as carbon is sequestered in water, life, and rocks the global average temperature cools. Before humans came onto the scene, every 25,000 years or so, the carbon would shift either up or down and you'd get a peak or valley in the carbon in the atmosphere and a corresponding peak or valley in the global average temperature. It is, as the skeptics say, there is evidence of a natural cycle for sure. We also can't ignore the Earth's natural wobble and wandering along its orbit closer and further from the sun, both in distance and axis tilt, which affects how much sunlight each hemisphere gets on a scale of about 30,000 years. But the Earth's wandering path through the void of space is predictable and is a part of the scientists' calculations in these models. Until recently, in geologic time, this natural cycle was, for the most part, missing one key component of the carbon cycle as we know it today, the burning of fossil fuels. No other life form on Earth does this with the purpose and sheer volume that humans do. Yes, forests and grasslands burn sometimes, but they do not burn coal and gas constantly every day for generations like humans do. I swear to God, (laughs) this is my (laughs) Bubby's main argument. In 2015, humans released 40 billion metric tons of carbon. In case you're wondering, that's 10 zeros after the 40. Or, sorry, after the four. Keep in mind, if you have one billion pennies, you have $100 million, which could buy you your own 150-person private jet or your very own original Vincent van Gogh self-portrait. If oh, holy you have, shit. Yeah. If you have a billion seconds of time spending World of Warcraft, you have spent 11,574 days or 31 fucking years playing World of Warcraft. <laughs>
1: a sad existence
0: i don't play wow it hasn't even existed that long
1: i'm I'm alienating i'm alienating our audience
0: we don't know our audience yet we don't know what they like i they could like world of warcraft i don't want to exclude them okay
1: oh i have i'm just kidding i don't know anything about mmos please don't come for me
0: my next line is such a fucking. Oh my god. Okay. First of all, are you my coworker Luke who drinks exclusively Powerade and eats exclusively cheddar flavored Chex mix? Second of all, a billion of something is a lot and a ton of something is also a lot. So several billion tons of carbon is a lot. And that was just in one single year.
1: I so. love how you have absolutely roasted one of your coworkers.
0: <laughs> I guess he's my ex coworker <laughs> now. It's okay. We (laughs) roasted each other all the time. I am really klutzy, so he roasts me for that all the time. (laughs) Yeah, but this is recorded. It's it's like memorialized. (laughs) That's true. Let's talk about correlation and causation. Now, this next part is correlation, not causation. So keep that in mind. Right when humans come onto the scene and start burning fires and figuring out other ways to fuel their lives, the carbon in the atmosphere began to rise. So about 50,000 years ago, Generally speaking, carbon carbon levels began to rise. There are peaks and valleys even as the general trend goes upward, but the overall trend in carbon in the atmosphere has been increasing since humans came onto the scene. In addition, once the Industrial Revolution occurred, which is when we started mass-producing goods, traveling to see each other, and plowing absolutely enormous quantities of land, the carbon concentration in the atmosphere spiked up precipitously. I have three sources for that, in case you're wondering. (laughs) This spike is sometimes called The Hockey Stick, and Al Gore actually addresses this data in his Inconvenient Truth Talk, which I watched in environmental, high sc- or environmental science c- class in high school. I've never actually watched Al Gore talk about the environment. Honestly, it pretty much stands up for the most part, his talk, which is impressive because I think it came out in like 2- 1999 or something. Anyway, The Hockey Stick is a source of controversy, specifically in the climate denial community. However, multiple sources have validated the uptick in carbon by trying and succeeding to recreate the results found in the original study, so it's not a point of controversy in the overall scientific community, right? Like, Lauren, all this stuff is familiar to you, right? Because we were taught it.
1: Yes. Yeah, it is familiar to me. It is part of college courses that I underwent. I was not in environmental science per se, but I did have to take environmental science courses for an environmental engineering degree. So
0: like we we, as the scientific community, we accept this information. So the overall correlation is undeniable. But what about the causation? Have scientists proven that there is a causal relationship between human generated carbon dioxide and the uptick in global mean temperature? Lauren, what's your guess?
1: Uh, Well, I'm going to ta- take a wild swing and say,
0: yeah, they probably have. <laughs> yes. Yes, they have. <laughs> so many attribution studies have been done to make sure this is a real thing we need to worry about. An attribution study, by the way, is a study specifically for looking into the causal relationship between two data sets. If you want to know more about how these studies are done, please read, quote, climate science for everyone, colon, correlation and causation, unquote, by Brian Anglis. Uh, he puts it really well. And I'm not I'm not a statistician. So I'm not going to I'm going to stay in my geology lane over here. So I'm not going to go too far into the statistics thing. But basically, in 2011, a model was developed that confirmed the hypothesis of a causal relationship. In a 2016 study, they find statistical significance in the greenhouse gas component to global temperature, and they did not find natural components such as volcanic emissions or solar fluctuations to be sig- statistically significant. Bro, there are so many studies, and a lot of them aren't even behind paywalls. So, you've probably heard figures recently saying that about 97% of scientists agree that climate change is a problem, but I think it's more important to highlight the official statements of well-respected scientific organizations. You may have heard of some of them. The American Medical Association, the American Meteorological Society, the Geologic Society of America... Academies of science of basically every South American country, the Environmental Protection Agency, science academies of every European country, the Korean Academy of Science Technology, dot, 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 dot. (laughs) I could keep listing, but the point is all of these entities have official statements regarding the causative relationship between human-released carbon and global temperature. You, You can see the full listing if you look at this section of our transcript and look at my source. Another point I'd like to make is that this information has been presented as fact, like I said earlier, to the science students in universities and high schools for a couple of generations now. Throughout my enca- entire academic career, this information was shared not with a grade of controversy. It was just shared, especially since it's, there's so much geologic evidence. The human effect on carbon concentration in the atmosphere is undeniable. So to close out my section, I am going to read a particular poignant po- quote. What's a poate? I'm going to read a particularly poignant quote from the American Physical Society in 2015. Earth's changing climate is a critical issue and poses the risk of significant environmental, social, and economic disruptions around the globe. While natural sources of climate variability are significant, multiple lines of evidence indicate that human influences have had an increasingly dominant effect on global climate warming observed since the mid-20th century, end quote. So with that, Lauren, I believe it is your turn to tell us some stuff.
1: So uh, I'll be I'll be talking about the uh, potential effects of climate change, and uh, I'll also be talking about like some like responses i guess uh like that we currently are either like working towards or should be working towards i guess might be more accurate in some cases
0: um yikes <laughs> i'm gonna start drinking
1: okay so uh first things first i want to give <laughs> a specific shout out to nasa for having a really good overview of really everything relevant to climate change at their site climate.nasa.gov and this includes they have a series of trackers for global co2 levels uh they're tracking the shrinkage rate of arctic ice and the rate of sea level rise
0: oh that's actually really cool i love me a tracker
1: yeah it's uh i mean like i think that it's just updated annually at least as far as i could tell but uh, overall, like their site is really informative and it presents a lot of really good summaries for a lot of the questions that people often ask regarding climate change. So like if you're if I don't specifically talk about anything and you are interested in learning about anything in hearing more like or if you have like interest in a particular specific topic, uh, I really recommend just even. Like flipping through, even if you don't have any particular questions, just flipping through their FAQ section um, and just reading whatever grabs your interest there uh, to better understand some of the specifics that we just don't have the time to get into today.
0: Will do. Okay.
1: So all that being said, um, I'm going to start out by talking a little about the potential effects of climate change, and I'm going to be keeping it pretty high level. So uh, I won't be going into heavy detail. So we've already been seeing and feeling some of the effects of climate change, including the shrinking of glaciers as well as unusual weather patterns. And it's predicted that we'll be seeing temperature rises between 2.5 and 10 degrees Fahrenheit over the next century. I didn't
0: realize it was that high.
1: Yeah. uh, I mean, you know, it's a range and the extent of the effect on different regions of the world is going to be variable. Right. In general, the effects that we'll be seeing everywhere are continued rising temperatures, lengthened growing seasons for agriculture, which really just means the reduction of frost seasons.
0: Yeah. More summer, less spring
1: and fall. Exactly. So think So crops that depend on that frost season to develop, like apples. um,
0: (laughs) Yeah, some seeds actually need cold to germinate. Yeah, so uh,
1: like I'm not I'm not a farmer, so I don't know all of them, but I can like things like that will be affected. Um, We'll see changes in precipitation patterns, uh, more droughts, stronger hurricanes, and uh, sea level rise of about one to four feet in the next hundred years. Um, And it's predicted that the Arctic will be ice-free in summer before we even hit the mid-century mark.
0: Damn! Holy shit. Wait, okay. So the Arctic being the North Pole, not the South Pole? Yes. Okay. Yes. That's. I Um, didn't realize it was that bad. Okay, God. Even I didn't know that. (laughs) Holy shit, dude. Yeah, it's rough. It's, uh...
1: (laughs) (laughs) I
0: was reading all of this and I was like, oh, God, I'm really anxious. (laughs) I I also want to highlight that a sea level rise of one to four feet doesn't sound very dramatic, but keep in mind, there are a lot of places that are built below sea level. There's some places like Key West doesn't get, I think it's like five meters above sea level. So most of Key West would be underwater. Like, it's a big deal.
1: Yeah, basically, like there's going to be a ton of islands that are like at most like a foot above sea level and like. Yeah. One to four feet is just, that's an estimate based on, like, the rates at which we are currently pumping out carbon dioxide. And... Right.
0: And that will just displace a whole bunch of people and animals and all sorts of things. In fact, that this is just a digression. But the reason the Black Plague, we think with Black Plague started, is we think that some sort of um, cataclysmic environmental event occurred that displaced a whole bunch of rats. So, you know, maybe we'll have another, yeah. another, another plague, I say, mid-coronavirus. <laughs> Yeah.
1: One of the things that's interesting to me as in, I'm not technically an engineer. I'm not, I'm not certified. I don't have my professional engineering license yet. I'm not far enough in the field to get, to have that.
0: And if but, Ian gets uh, to call himself an engineer, I think you're an engineer.
1: <laughs> but, uh, it's like even now we're seeing like pretty significant changes to precipitation patterns. Yeah. Like, uh, Some places are getting drier. Some places are seeing heavier precipitation events than usual.
0: New Hampshire just had its warmest um, winter in,
1: like, years. Yeah. Like, and that's the thing, is, like, the climate projections, at least for the U.S., uh, indicate that even regions, like, regions that are likely to experience, like, heavier droughts, things like the Southwest and stuff, they're more likely to experience things like that, when they get uh, storm events, they're they're even though they're experiencing less total annual rainfall, they're likely to have heavier and more intense storm events. Yeah, like monsoons. So yeah. So that's because like the increase in the surface temperature increases evaporation rates, which means more water is in the atmosphere. So more storms, more flooding. And since all of our existing storm infrastructure, from you know, from dams to retention ponds, that that's is garbage? all built <laughs> it's all <laughs> Built on historical data for rainfall, because that's all we have to build it using, like is, uh, you know, uh, historical records going back however far we can get them, basically, um, whenever someone started keeping track. But since we've had such like we've had such different weather just in the last five to 10 years, but things that have been built prior we're built on this historical data, so they're not built up to the events we're seeing. And even if we're building now, like that's not necessarily enough data for us to go off of for future designs.
0: That's a good um, point.
1: So uh overall it's just well, it's not great. <laughs> <laughs> because we we societally are not quite built for this in a very literal way. Mm-hmm. So all of this is pretty grim. And uh, unfortunately, at this point, the most we can hope for is to make changes to keep the consequences of the damage we've already done from being the absolute worst that they could possibly be. Right,
0: I've heard that line before.
1: Yeah, yeah. that is to say, like even if we, even if globally we stopped emitting all greenhouse gases today, there would still be significant global warming for the next several decades carbon dioxide levels will not immediately decrease to their historical levels. And what we've already put into the atmosphere is going to linger there. Yeah. Additionally, the surface temperature of the planet, it doesn't just instantaneously adjust to... It certainly does not. The, yeah, it doesn't instantaneously adjust to the new carbon dioxide levels either. and no, it follows it a little bit. Yeah. This is because a lot of that energy that you know came in from the sun got trapped here that energy gets stored in the ocean and we there's this thing this term called thermal inertia so basically there's a lag between our actions and like pumping out all this carbon and when we actually feel the effects of them a lot of people compare this to um like they call it like the carbon blanket but more recent research has implied that it's it's less like this carbon blanket and more like...
0: It's like, okay, I have, I have a, a thing. So if you start out with a truck with no bed, that's like the earth without us pumping carbon monoxide into it. Dioxide, excuse me. Carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide. But as we add more cargo to the truck, aka carbon, it gets heavier and heavier. So it's much harder if we decide to we're on the highway... And we suddenly are like, hmm, this is too much carbon. We should get rid of it. It's much harder to stop the truck with all that carbon already on it. Thermal inertia. I'm a genius. Where's my Nobel Peace Prize? So all of this is pretty grim. (laughs) And
1: so uh, because of this, any response to climate change has to be two-pronged. It has to include adaptation in addition to mitigation. We have to adapt to the changes that we've already been setting in motion. Um, this, inc- this includes defenses against flooding, plans for heat waves and droughts, right? Um, additional investments into stormwater management. Um, maybe no combined sewers. Just a thought.
0: Just, just, yeah, just a <laughs> little teaser, brain teaser, you know. Keep that on the old <laughs> noggin.
1: Yeah. But anyway, mitigation tactics uh, generally come down to one of two things either reducing greenhouse gas emissions in various ways or enhancing the sinks that have the ability to store some of the excess carbon that we're producing.
0: So a carbon sink would be any physical or chemical way that uh, the Earth stores carbon, basically. Yeah. So, like, for example, the ocean is a carbon sink. Uh, trees are yeah. a carbon sink. All those things I mentioned earlier that absorb carbon and sequester it are carbon sinks. Yeah. Yeah, basically, it's it's...
1: It's easiest for me to think about it like a drain. like it's like it just takes it in, it removes it from the overall um, outside environment. Um, at least in this case, that's how I'm using it. So carbon sequestration falls into that category. so things like restoring forests and wetlands can help to offset at least some of the carbon that we produce. Thanks, team trees. And obviously those have other secondary environmental benefits as well. We talked about wetlands quite a bit in our previous episode. What? The one
0: about wetlands? We talked about wetlands in that one. (laughs) Did we? I I can't quite remember. It's been a while. To be fair, mid-January is when we recorded that and it is now late March. (laughs) Yeah. We're so good at this. But yeah.
1: (laughs) In addition to carbon sequestration, it provides additional benefits environmentally um another uh version of carbon sequestration is uh carbon farming carbon farming it's um, i've never heard of this yeah carbon farming it's a it's another potential method of carbon sequestration the idea is that you encourage the carbon to remain in soil by trapping it uh you reduce the tilling plant longer rooted crops okay yeah, and you try to incorporate more organics into the soil. It's like a good option if you have land that's like already in agricultural use.
0: So kind of phasing phasing your farming operation into being more of a sequestration operation as well.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's like your goal is to try and get the soil to hold on to more carbon. That like, is so
0: cool. I had not heard of that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: People aren't sure. Um, I guess like no one's quite sure like how long it holds on to the carbon, but like. I mean, you might as well try. Why not? <laughs> but um, another uh, the final method that I wanted to talk about, there's like others, but um, the final one that I wanted to talk about here is uh, bioenergy carbon capture and storage, or VEX. This essentially works by capturing carbon that would have been released into the air in traditional industrial facilities, concentrating it, then trapping it in some material, like plastic or concrete or... Um, in some cases, they've injected it into rock formations deep in the earth. This is, it's a developing technology, but it's yeah. fairly promising, as theoretically, it has the potential to have a negative emission count.
0: Yeah. Plus, it, it offsets all the industrial um, stuff, which is a huge yeah, problem. It
1: offsets the industrial, but they built a proof of concept facility in Decatur, Illinois, And this plant is attached to an ethanol production facility. That plant itself is not carbon negative, but it captures carbon from the ambient air in addition to industrial processes at the facility. So in theory, could could be carbon negative.
0: That'd be cool if we just had like whole parks of just like cool sculptures made out of that concrete that absorbs carbon and then you just have like all this art that's also doing work. Yeah, that'd be cool. Get on it, Banksy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're not a sculptor, dude, but let's go.
1: Like I said, this is like a really, this is an experimental technology. There's only like 20 some facilities or something worldwide. Could be slightly more than that since the article I read was from a, a couple of years ago. So it could be more since, but um, the reason it's so promising is because potentially like like i said before we've already put so much carbon into the atmosphere and that's going to linger there unless we are doing something to actively try to remove it Mm -hmm. and it's an option for doing so which is better than a lot of other things that we could be doing
0: well that's cool i'm glad to hear that
1: yeah so i just thought it's like it's a cool thing and interesting and slightly more uplifting than like Even if we were to do everything exactly right starting now, things will still get worse. Whee!
0: Yay, our reality. Oh, it's my personal favorite segment possibly because i always do it endangered species corner woo! behold the arctic turn lauren you can scroll down and see the arctic turn oh he's
1: got a very black little wig yeah he has like, like he him. has like
0: a black toupee a gray body and an orange beak and <laughs> and, and, and feet he looks like
1: he's wearing like a black plate on his head yeah <laughs> it's it's, like, covered in feathers. But <laughs> it's very cute. It's just, like, it's like he's got a little black bowl cut. It's cute.
0: <laughs> oh, fantastic. So, uh, the Arctic Tern is a bird, by the way, um, if you want to Google that. So, the Arctic Tern. You've probably heard about climate change causing extinctions and redistributing a lot of species. Coastal migratory birds are especially threatened by increases in sea level. Put simply, as water comes on top of land, the land shrinks, and thus the amount of land for various life shrinks. To put it a little more complexly, as habitat shrinks and natural processes like rainfall and temperatures begin to shift with the climate changing, migratory birds start to show signs of confusion as their biological clocks become disrupted. Confused migrating birds will begin their journeys too early or too late in the year. This may not seem like a big deal... By mistiming their migrations, these birds put themselves at a lot of risk for drought, cold snaps, and heat waves, which can kill the birds. Uh, some species are abandoning migration altogether. All these disruptions in normal migration patterns mess with the birds' ability to make new birds, since a lot of them migrate specifically to reproduce. And if no new birds are made, there will be no more birds. Oh, no. I, <laughs> I, I said that like it was a joke, but it's really sad. <laughs> uh, this... The disruption isn't just affecting the birds' migrations patterns, but the patterns of the behavior of their prey as well. Uh, Changes in climate are affecting life cycles of the birds and of insects at different rates. As temperatures increase earlier in the spring, insects have their babies earlier in the year, which makes it harder for the birds to feed their babies later in the year, since all the caterpillars have already started metamorphosis by the time the birds are having babies. So now that we know generally how birds are being affected, let's talk about a specific species, the Arctic tern. The Arctic tern is famous for its bonkers migration route all the way around the perimeter of the Atlantic Ocean, as in it goes south all the way down the Americas, all the way to Antarctica, back up the west coasts of Europe and Africa.
1: That's so wild. That's so much distance.
0: (laughs) Yeah! It is a foot-long white bird with gray wings, a black cap on its head, and bright red feet and bill. Its wingspan is almost three feet long. Its conservation status is listed as steadily declining on the southern Atlantic coast and stable in other parts of the U.S., so that's good. It should be noted that this statistic is from the Audubon Society, which only looks at the U.S. numbers, so I don't know numbers for other uh, parts of the world for Arctic Terns. The Arctic tern's habitat is open ocean, rocky coasts, and sometimes tundra lakes in the summer. They're pretty common in northern Canada and Alaska. Uh, It tends to hang out in the cold waters offshore and only hang out on coasts to breed. So it really likes the open ocean. Um, Arctic tern parents will throw down to anyone who tries to fuck with their eggs, diving and striking at intruders. One article I read said, quote... In fact, they're so ferocious that other bird species will take advantage of their protective cover by building their own nests nearby, unquote.
1: Incredible.
0: Shout out to Arctic Turn Dads for doing the bare minimum of also contributing to feeding the babies as they hatch rather than leaving all that work to the mothers. Like some species I know. I'm actually making fun of ducks, <laughs> not humans.
1: <laughs> Why? Are, every time I learn something about ducks, I'm like, I really shouldn't like them as much as I do. They're so
0: cute, they're awful. They're all- <laughs> OK, The Arctic tern eats fish, crustaceans and insects. Obviously, which of these they eat are going to vary where they are, based on location, fish at sea, crustaceans on the coast, insects inland. It has also been known to steal other birds' food by swooping in to- down to surprise the bird, then darting off with the stolen snack. Now, Lord, you're probably wondering. How do these birds let each other know that they want a bone? Well, I'm glad you asked. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's definitely a question I was-
0: This is- Really on my mind. For some fucking reason, I've decided that this has to be in every single one of these segments. I don't know why. Cool. Animals are funny, I don't know. Female turns chase males up into the air to get the party started. They eventually end up on land, and the males bring the females gifts of fish. Finally, the courtship becomes, as most courtships do, about dance moves and to turn, strut around, and posture with their wings open. Okay, I feel like that's like standardish bird. I don't. That's standard bird. I, I like the reason I included that is because they give each other gifts of fish. I thought. That yeah, was that very is cute. cute. Fish, the Ferrero Rocher of turns. Okay, finally, <laughs> I'd like to close with some fun Arctic Tern facts provided by OceanWideExpeditions.com. Ahem. Arctic Terns are one of the only birds, aside from the hummingbird, that can hover. So that's What cool. the fuck? That's cool. Yeah, these are all direct quotes, by the way. Because of their migratory pattern, Arctic Terns see two summers a year and get more daylight than any other animal in the world. Arctic terns travel for an estimated 2.4 million kilometers, also known as 1.49 million miles in American, in their lifetimes. That is three round-trip flights to the moon. Wait, that's a lot. I wrote this like months ago. Holy shit. Okay. (laughs) Arctic terns do not spend the whole route of their migrations flapping their wings, but rather glide a great amount of the distance. Actually, they're such good gliders that they can even sleep while gliding. That's wild. And finally, this is my favorite one that I think will also be your favorite. Right before a colony of Arctic terns take flight, they grow silent. This moment is referred to as the dread. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's relatable. (laughs) Anyway, that concludes my segment. I hope you enjoyed the Endangered Species Corner. You listeners for listening to our shoddily put together podcast about the environment. I hope you learned something today. I I actually did learn something today. I'm shocked. <laughs> I learned so much about carbon sequestration techniques and I relearned about turns because I wrote that copy a long time ago <laughs> oh, good stuff.
1: Thanks for hanging out with me, Ellie, and our best friend, Earth. Uh, so,
0: so that's our outro, huh? That's what we're going with? Uh, we'll do it better next time. Hey, thanks for listening to Speaking for the Trees. Feel free to follow our social media accounts. We are at Speaking for both Instagram and Twitter. If you have any topic ideas or corrections, you can go ahead and email those to forthetrees.pod at gmail.com. Our logo is by Tyler C. Hurst. You can find him at at Tyler C. Hurst on Instagram and Twitter. Our theme song is Porch Swing Days Faster by Kevin MacLeod. Okay, love you, bye.